Hello and welcome to the Digital Works podcast, the podcast about digital stuff in the cultural sector. My name's Ash and in today's episode, episode number 32, we talk to Fran Sanderson. Fran is the Director of Arts Programmes and Investments at Nesta. We discuss the funding landscape for the cultural sector, what effective funding for digital projects might look like, risk appetite and questions of value, amongst many other things. We join our conversation mid-flow with Fran describing the significant shift she is leading in how Nesta is thinking about their investments in the arts. Essentially, what we think we see and what has been kind of, we've kicked the tires with quite a few people and our funders on this, is a gap in the market for a funding ecosystem, which takes you all the way from idea to scaling, yeah. but does that in a thoughtful and sequenced way. So what we have now already is the scaling capital, but that's quite risk averse. You've got to have quite a developed idea before you come to that. In the investment funds, we're seeing a lot of property projects, uh-huh. which is fair enough. That's the thing that people have to invest in. That's the assets their board understand spending money in. But we do think that's a very narrow myopic view of what the assets of the sector are. So there isn't enough investing in understanding your content or your brand or how to make money out of that. And that feels like a really huge opportunity, albeit with the challenges around distribution, etc. But I think people just don't have the support or the finance to develop those ideas. So also there isn't often the infrastructure within an organisation. So you'll have somebody who might have an idea about what to do, but who do they get to support them, buy in on the senior team? Even if they could get external funding, how do you get permission to carve out some of your time to do that development work? And a huge missed opportunity for shared learning. So developing together, understanding, not just hiding your failures in a box, but letting other people learn from them. And there are so many failures with these. You know, all of this experimentation is about failing. Go, well, that didn't work. Okay, let's try this. Yeah. So that kind of resource that's more of a, I don't want to say GitHub because that sounds trite, but. It's giving you the building blocks to understand how to do this kind of development yourself as a creative or an organization. Then thinking about how you get that to how do you create resources that are shareable for those? How do you create, I guess, education programs, fellowships, the kind of environments where you learning environments. Yeah. Um, so people can understand how to not just new technology, new audiences, working with data, all of these things and making new stuff. So making new artwork, not NFTs. The NFTs do feel like they're going away there slightly. Is, there yeah. are some, I mean, I think there are use cases for NFTs. I just think it's got massively hyped and yeah. it's also very challenging, obviously, being linked to crypto. Very but it volatile. Sounds, sounds like what you're describing there is you're trying to design more of a, like an ecosystem, an environment in which innovation, how have you want to describe that big eye, little eye, can happen and then can be accelerated and then can be sustained. Whereas the traditional grant funding model is not that. I don't think so. I mean, I think there have been some programs that some bits have worked off without wishing to down with faint praise. But I think the audience of the future, there were some really strong elements of that. I think one of the things that we've done at Nesta, which we've been able to do because we're independent is to uh, and we're not bound by public money ratios or anything is to be able to spend more on the overheads of a grant program so i think 
it can be really challenging when you've got a big grant, but the amount of support that's there to help you spend it wisely is naturally limited by the design of the grant program. So I think one thing that we've tried to do is be really careful about, well, actually, how do we optimize the value from that money? It's not necessarily deciding that the highest amount of it has to go out to the grantee. For a lot of these grant funds, especially if it's in early stage development, it's actually much more sensible to spend a lot of money on supporting people to spend that grant money well, to learn together, etc. So I think that's, we would be generally a high overhead grant funder. And I think there's a real space for that and a gap for that in the market. But it's obviously challenging to raise money to do that. It's easier when you've got your own money. <laughs> yeah, but it feels like as well, because when it comes to digital projects, often organisations haven't necessarily worked at scale in that mm. space. And so it feels like there isn't the understanding about how you put together the budget for a project like that, yeah. you know, in a way that people understand how to put together a budget for a show or an exhibition yeah. or an extension to the building. And it doesn't feel like there's that same level of knowledge and understanding and experience yeah, in putting together I a budget agree. for, for digital. And also the kind of understanding of what is going to happen and what are the contingencies and, you know, which forks in the road might occur. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think there is, again, a gap. And I would say this for a support agency that can help people do that. I also think partnerships are potentially really interesting here. So I think, again, one of the visions of having an independent intermediary is, is to kind of balance that power dynamic between private sector, commercial sector, and independent creatives or subsidized arts organizations, because there is obviously, you know, there's an attraction, a mutual attraction there. There's, there's obvious things that they have to offer each other, but you can end up that the commercial partner who's got the money and stuff and the resources ends up taking a bit more of the benefit or the IP sits with the commercial partner. So again, I think there's some clever workings out to do about the incentive structures and partnerships that can mean everybody wins in the end in terms of how those happen. But I think it probably does need a broker in the middle. Yeah. And it does feel like probably, or certainly from my perspective, sitting here on the sidelines a little bit, that those sort of coalitions are going to become more common and more necessary in order to put this work on because i don't think there are going to be the big lumps of money from a single source and also there isn't the expertise in yeah. the cultural organization to be able to i mean that's the thing i hope but my fear is that you know as a creative working in the uk in particular today your choices are quite limited about who's going to pay you and i think they're only going to get more limited so in order for the talent to remain in the independent sector and not all get completely sucked up by the private sector, which is not good for audiences or, or anyone really, we do need to make sure that that's, and I'm not blaming any creatives who are going for following the money, like it's really difficult to live as a creative in the UK. That's not funny. But that's where I see the kind of big picture concerns is that, you know, the choices are more limited and increasingly so as the kind of buying power is concentrated within the private sector yeah and i wonder if you know we, we were talking about this a bit before i hit record but in conversations on this podcast and elsewhere it feels like whilst there's an appreciation of funds that have been made available over recent years for digital projects there is also a frustration in the way that those funds are designed i.e when you're 
submitting an application, you will have to detail every possible permutation of the thing you're describing, even when it may be experimental in nature. Yeah. And also, when the odd project is successful, there is rarely the opportunity for follow-on funding to sort of accelerate that success yeah. and, and sustain it. And as someone who works at a funder, is that something that funders are mindful of or aware of? Or, or are, are funders learning how to fund this work as cultural organisations are learning how they need to invest in it? Yes, I think so, but not particularly quickly because it's hard and it's bitty. I think that funders are working together more cautiously because obviously, you know, you need plurality in the funding landscape. And I think everyone's aware that you don't want to lose that. I think the, the kind of philanthropic landscape in general is a bit more conscious of not being top down, of power dynamics, of not being dictatorial. At the same time, I think it is seen as risky. There is a lot of risk aversion. People are worried about spending money wisely. And I think when you look at an area that you don't understand as well, you do look for more detail and more information and you're worried about delivery risk. And, you know, I think every funder's nightmare is that they go off and fund loads of projects, they've got nothing to show for it and, and they look like they haven't done their due diligence. At the same time, you've got to strike a balance between being heavy-handed, A, in terms of the resources of the very resource-constrained organisations we're usually funding, and B, heavy-handed in that you don't want to stifle any imagination or creativity in the project. And the point you make about, you know, agile development and adaptability is really crucial for this kind of work. You know, you just don't know what you don't know. And that's what experimentation is. And that's what creatives are used to. And I think that, to be honest, that probably goes for broader arts funding as well, in that, again, it's a power balance thing and it's a risk thing. You, you need to give artists a space to experiment and to not know exactly what they're going to do and to have an idea and to fail and learn from that and let other people learn from that as well um, or make something that wasn't remotely what they thought they were going to make. And, you know, you don't want to rule out the happy accidents because that's a lot of where creativity lives. But I do think it's a challenge for funders. I think, I think working together can help you mitigate that risk to a certain extent. I certainly think learning together and sharing learnings and being open about what's worked and what hasn't is really critical to understanding I think yeah on that note I think we learned a lot from the digital R&D fund which in lots of ways was maybe a little bit ahead of its time but I think made a few assumptions that didn't necessarily bear out particularly successfully in terms of I think if we did it again what we would do is focus on challenges that were universal and that means that the learnings and the research reports that come out of it are genuinely valuable we would certainly keep in touch with our grantees more, have longitudinal. I mean, the Digital Culture Survey, I think, was helpful. And it was nice to have that snapshot of, of what's going on in the sector. And interesting to see how reality measures up against your hypotheses, which was that progress was, was slower than we thought it would be in lots of cases. And that was even prior to the pandemic. But that's another whole area which we were just talking about, yeah. what happened to digital innovation in the pandemic. But I think what you're... <sighs> I think the gap you're describing there is a funder other than the Arts Council that has a strategic interest or strategic perspective on research and development around digital stuff. And 
it's probably unfair and unrealistic to expect the Arts Council to ever be able to... Well, the Arts Council's got a huge exactly. remit. Yeah. And um, and I think the Arts Council does do some of that really well. I think the Tech Champions have been good. I think the Creative XR, things like that. Specific projects have been, and they do a lot of work on innovation. I think it's probably harder for them to broker partnerships. Again, they have the same constraints around how much of the grant funding they can spend on support, I think, with government funding. So sort of internal overhead ratios are a constraint for them. And I think being obviously their arm's length from government, but sometimes that can be a constraining factor. And I think that the other funders as well would be keen to understand better how to do this, because I think it's a concentrated area. It feels quite overwhelming. I know that Rothschild Foundation did a fellowship with the Royal Shakespeare Company that seemed to be really well received by both sides. But it, that's kind of, it, it's hard to do that in that piecemeal fashion. I think they're going to publish some findings from that. But I know that lots of the funders are interested, don't quite know what to do, how to do it. We did actually have a digital subgroup of the Arts Funders Network, and I think that was on me to arrange the next meeting. So <laughs> note to self, uh, I'll get that done. But I think it's interesting to hear, hear that because, you know, we, I talk a lot with people about digital literacy and digital leadership in cultural organisations, but it sounds like from what you're saying that that is also an area that needs to be thought about and focused on in the whole cultural ecosystem, including in-house at funders. I think there's maybe a yeah. bit of an, an assumption that oh, fund, funders have got that sorted and they're choosing not to yeah, invest in this area. I don't think area. that's the case at all. I think that funders feel nervous at the moment about dictating what organisations should do. I think they feel nervous about making that allocation on behalf of organisations. So I, I feel like more funders are moving towards... I don't have data on this, but I feel like there's a bit more propensity to fund core funding or to, you know, give you a bit more unrestricted income. So that kind of feels like maybe they feel like funding digital specifically is moving away from that and moving more towards telling you what to do. But I think people are nervous about audiences. I think they're nervous about what are the future revenue streams. I think all funders, you know, it's difficult you have a funding round, you want to understand as part of that funding round why you're going to be able to fund a different organisation next funding round because you're helping some kind of foster some kind of independence. But at the same time, you haven't got the long term necessarily to develop a new business plan. So yeah. that does bend you a little bit towards understood business models rather than new ones. But it, I, yeah, I do think there's a lot of awareness of audiences changing, audience needs changing, what are the business models of 10, 20, 30 years in the future? And it feels like the danger is, and again, we were talking about this before, the danger is in organisations understandably refocusing on sort of in-person attendance, programming choices maybe becoming slightly more conservative with a small c, again, understandably so, that the focus on the immediate term is going to distract mm. from a necessary focus on a quite significant shift that needs to happen for longer term viability. And do you think funders are, again, mindful of that, aware of that? Or again, is there, is there a, a slight risk aversion that, okay, we want to invest in buildings, we understand people are making safer choices, and we're not going to try and push that we want to give unrestricted funding, which because people are in this risk averse mode is going to get yeah, I on. think it's more the latter. I think it's less that funders are thinking we want to do the safe things. I think 
funders are thinking we don't want to tell organizations what to do and organizations are thinking we want to do the safe things. So that's my perception of it. And again, as you say, that's totally understandable. My worry is that there was a lot of amazing, you know, I feel like I'm using a buzz phrase, but this is an actual description of frugal innovation that was going on in the pandemic where people were putting on shows on Zoom and, you know, doing low cost, interesting things, actually quite high operating leverage models where you could make a lot of money from a show as long as you've got the audience because your costs were relatively low. And that kind of development, I feel potentially might just go by the wayside. There's lots of ideas there. There isn't the funding to go, okay, well, what was that thing you did in 2021? If you could develop that, if you had, you know, either your own coder or, or access to another coder to do this and see how far you could take it, whether you could package it up and sell it to other organizations as some kind of franchise or product. You know, I feel like there probably is a lot of that stuff out there that either people are working in their own time to do or have just given up on because they don't have the resource. So, I mean, that's within our space is more arts organizations, but that's also within, you know, smaller independent creatives as well. And that sort of touches back on a point you made earlier about the cultural sector understanding where value lies. And it feels like that is still an area that almost every cultural organization could stand to become a bit more familiar with because, you know, the art and inverted commas as it traditionally exists seems to be what people focus on. Yeah. And actually in a digital context, value exists in lots of other ways and and places. (laughs) How do we how do we help people to to shift their understanding of what is valuable? Such a big question, isn't it? I mean, there's, there is the kind of, I guess we look at it in three ways because ultimately when we're talking to investors, investors like Axis and we have our social axis and our artistic or cultural axis and then the financial axis as well. I think one of the ones that sadly, in terms of digital innovation in the pandemic and what that did for access, I, I'm worried about that one, the social value of that and kind of equality and you know how someone disabled who can't make it to a venue could see their favorite band in the same way as somebody else and there's a real value to that that I think we may be missing a trick in terms of access and inclusion and I think people think about that you know the majority of artists that's really at the core of their practice is 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 some kind of social mission as well as the cultural mission I don't know if we know how to think about them together. I think there's still a really unhelpful perception that popular is not artistic. (laughs) If something's commercially successful, then it can't be that good. So I think we need to just think about framing all of those areas of value and impact in a helpful, non-competitive way that kind of shows that they bounce off each other and accrue. And actually, the arts are amazing for all three of those, for like enriching our lives with content that makes us think differently and fun experiences connection and also you know can make loads of money you know i think the appetite for artistic content is only growing and if you look at tv and streaming the quality of what you can see now it's just incredible it's, it's unbelievable if you if you look back 10 15 years and audiences really really want it and yeah. are willing to pay for it so thinking about how we reframe our relationship with audiences and what we feel entitled to expect people to pay for, I guess. That, I mean, there's other questions like other sectors will get paid for what they deliver in terms of health savings or... That seems to be 
the money doesn't very naturally follow the patient if you're getting a, a sort of health referral into the arts sector. And that feels like a challenge. So I think I digressed wildly on your <laughs> thinking about kind of if we go into artistic and financial value, I think, you know, with work, there is always this. And I, I find whenever I see my artist friends that I sort of can't quite believe that they've given up on that thing they were doing two years ago. It's like, but that was amazing. A million people need to see it. And they're like, no, I want the next yeah. thing. That's not necessarily a digital question, but digital is an opportunity to keep those assets. You know, I mean, I, I think of this sort of digital graveyard of brilliant stuff that is around and people have got on SD cards or hard drives somewhere and people don't see. And I guess that's a distribution challenge. But, you know, thinking of that as valuable there's a mindset shift there as well, I think. So as kind of, you know, I've got this work in my oeuvre. Sorry, I'm not very good at French. How can that be something, you know, it's not just something I put on my CV and I've got some reviews for. It's still there. It still exists and people can still see it. So I think thinking about how new modes of distribution can change that mindset in creatives is really helpful. And also, presumably alongside that, institutions need to think about their models of artistic development and their models of production yeah. because it feels like it's a lot of like all eyes on the prize which is putting a show on a stage or an exhibition in a room yeah. and everything else is steps to that final destination yeah. and actually quite often a number of those steps will be inherently valuable in and of themselves yeah that's you... such an interesting way of looking at it Definitely. And I think it does. That's hard work, right? To course, be thinking course. about everything in yeah, that way. Yeah, none of this is easy. There's no yeah. sort of easy answer in this, but it does feel like these are necessary, difficult conversations that perhaps, yeah. understandably, again, not enough cultural organisations are engaging with because there are lots of other difficult conversations they're thinking about. And I guess there is, like, to a certain extent, there are question marks about what is that, you know, maybe there's an extent to which people don't want to jump because maybe it is going to be marshmallow and Fortnite, or you know what is going to happen with the metaverse how are people going to interact with things what is the future of live shows and live performance i'm thinking i was listening to talking heads on the way here so i'm thinking about american utopia which was just such an amazing show and i love that people who didn't get to see it can just watch it yeah. there as a resource and have this amazing designed experience with yeah, that film exactly. you know that it's isn't like just, did it. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly but that it was designed both to be performed to that audience in the theatre, but also yeah. to be captured and delivered in a completely different way to an audience in a cinema or on a sofa. And it feels like thinking about, this is a horrible word, but how you present and exploit, again, another horrible word, the artistic product in yeah. different channels and different formats is something that the sector isn't necessarily fully engaging with. It's still, okay, we'll put a show on a stage and we might stream it, but we'll stream it pretty much as it was designed for a live in-person audience. And that's also audience. really expensive and yeah. glitchy and challenging. Yeah. And there's that gap, isn't there? It's what will people pay for and how do we do that and who owns the distribution and what are our options? So again, you know, I think it's really important that what we're doing i should probably talk about that briefly so the arts impact investment work that we do at nesta arts and culture finance that's going to be spinning out into a separate charity so we will do the impact investment from a separate organization also we were talking about this right at the beginning of when i press record yeah. so yeah it feels fundamental to us that what we're doing is charitable so it does look like it's and is for the sector 
you know, it's an organisation that has a charitable objective to provide a service for the sector that's required. And I think that is very helpful in building trust. So becoming a trusted broker to work for the sector. So I think, you know, when you're thinking about that kind of platform development, there is, well, qui bono, you know, what's going on here? What are the dynamics? I think if you've got someone independent making those assessments and thinking about how to develop stuff, that hopefully is helpful. I'm thinking specifically about platform challenges and who do you work with and what are commissioning models for content. Yeah, and that isn't all are, left to the cultural organisations yeah, to try and navigate exactly. their way through this. Because I think that is really challenging and I think there is a lot of kind of incumbency about, around how all contracts are structured and NIP shares happen and, you know, the thorny problem of rights and all of that kind of stuff. I, I feel like there's a gap in the market for a trusted broker who doesn't benefit in any way other than by fulfilling their charitable objectives yeah. to do some of that work. And with this new entity that you're describing here, you know, for people listening to this, lots of whom work in cultural organisations and maybe have ideas that they may bring to you. You know, we spoke before that historically it's been a lot about defining that quite specifically and the funding is relatively restricted to the yeah. delivery of whatever you've described. What you're planning to do is different. What is your sort of ideal approach from yeah. a cultural organisation? What are you going to be looking for, hoping for? Well, I'm going to give you a meta answer that might feel like a swerve. <laughs> but I think the thing that we most want to do in the first six months of the new organisation is to do a lot of sector consultation. So trying to work out, you know, not a, well, what do you want? Well, what do you want? But have a bit of a meet in the middle in terms of what is the real gap in terms of what people need, what is stopping people from doing this kind of work. But again, balancing that with, okay, cool, but this isn't just for you. You know, what we're doing here to help you is supposed to have a wider reach within the sector, albeit people should benefit from the work that they do and the development they do. And IP is going to be a really big question for us and something we think hard about throughout everything. Yeah, but it feels like historically, you know, there's been the intent to learn in the open, but the practical outcomes of that have been perhaps few and far between. I think one of the big things that we'll be trying to learn with our first few initiatives, and we'll probably start with small initiatives and then, you know, always incorporate the learning of those, is what is that balance between peer learning so I think there's a huge value to being in a group together, to feeling part of something, to learning together, you know, whether that's you're getting legal advice or you're getting financial advice or you're understanding how to buy in the services that you don't have or even what services you need to buy in for what you want to do and specific problems. So how do you define a program? Do you say we want to help regional theatres do 360 filming? Or do you say, what's your biggest problem? You come to us. And what's the balance between those two? What is helpful to do together? What is helpful to know for everybody? And what do you need that's individual to you? And how do you balance those things? And also I think what structures are helpful. So whether it's, you know, small R&D grants and then bigger development grants, you've then got the potential downside that you'll that you're introducing the element of competition, which can be undermining of the peer group. Do you do sort of a big challenge prize where you're actually not telling people how to spend the money, but you're working towards a certain thing? We did that with our alter narratives prize. And that was fun. I think that one worked and they didn't feel too competitive. They were individual creatives, which I think is helpful. Sounds like there's so many 
important questions that you're yeah. going to be engaging with. And it's nice to hear that you're not going, this is our incredibly specific hypothesis that we're going to sort of try and ram into the sector. And actually, you're going to try and be more at all. collaborative. Yeah, it is much more about consultation. What do you need? What do we not know? You know, obviously, we've got a particular perspective, but that's only as valuable as the stuff you admit into that perspective, right? So yeah. we don't automatically know anything, everything because of our position in the market. We still have to do the work to understand what the perspectives are and to, you know, balance those perspectives and, and come out with an answer. I don't think we're always going to get it right first time, but as long as you're committed to learning from what you've done. I think the other thing we really want to do is kind of create a community, so community of practice around whatever we're doing. We do that a little bit in our investees around building projects and, you know, trying to get university accreditation. So whatever your particular problem is, I think it's helpful to try and solve it together. I think being that hub where someone knows they can come to us and we might be able to connect them with somebody else, or we might have some resources, or we might understand what works better or what the evidence base is around a certain intervention that has singing for COPD or something like that. So I, I think having that central space if it doesn't sound too self-important or vainglorious I think there is you know we're trying to look for those things and we don't find a central resource that has them so I think creating a community like I said Ernesto we've been quite poor at keeping in touch with past grantees that's certainly something we want to address so you know creating that kind of family I'm just thinking of something I saw on LinkedIn yesterday that was like the perils of using family in the workplace <laughs> I think obviously I just saw the the, the (laughs) headline. I didn't read the whole thing, so I don't know what they are. But I don't want to use family in a um, in in some kind of. I think the uh, hypothesis is that a more helpful comparison is a team, a sports team, rather than a family, because family comes with all sorts of emotional emotional difficulties, baggage, obligations. (laughs) So yes, not about obligation, much more about team, learning together, working together, feeling supported, and having a kind of support structure. And like I said earlier, a shared learning environment. So that's only going to work if we're building that in conjunction with the sector that we're seeking to serve, I think. And this will be a time-limited section of the people listening in in 12 months. This is less relevant. But in terms of how that consultation is going to be conducted, do you have a sense of that yet? Is that going to be... Yeah, how will that work? Will you be inviting people to get in touch? Will you be reaching out to specific people and organisations? or Always happy to hear from people. There will be some kind of structure around it. We haven't designed it yet. To be honest, we, you know, we haven't secured the funding completely for this yet. So it's, there are dependencies on this. So at the moment, this is a proposal rather than a thing that's definitely going to happen. But we will, yeah, certainly be looking to engage with the sector, hopefully in inventive ways and open for suggestions as to what that could be. But I think some sort of curated groups Whether we might, yeah, I mean, we could either do it by art form. I think one thing we want to focus on is interdisciplinary work. So thinking about how we do that, you know, maybe there's value to having decidedly plural focus groups rather than focused focus groups, but then that might be totally overwhelming. So again, we'll probably do it certain ways, fuck it up and try and do it another way. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. (laughs) Swear all you like. Well, thanks so much, Fran. It's really exciting to hear your plans and fingers crossed in 12 months time we can have another chat and you can talk us through all the things that you've learned that would be great yeah it does feel really exciting and I, I hope we've done the work to check that this is actually something that's beneficial for the sector rather than us post rationalizing 
our weird set of expertises from Nesta into a coherent future organisation. So any thoughts on that? Welcome as well. But I think there is a huge opportunity here and I think there is a gap here and I hope that we can fill it with something really constructive. And that is everything for today. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of the podcast on our website where you can also sign up for the Digital Works newsletter, substract.com forward slash digital works. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is what we will continue to call it. We are at digital underscore works underscore. And I am at big little things. Our theme tune is Vienna Beat by Blue Dot Sessions. And last but not least, thanks to Mark Cotton for his editing support on this episode. See you again soon. Thank you.